to all of us. All right, Esther chapter 1, verse 1. Now it came to pass in the days of Ahasuerus, this Ahasuerus which reigned from India unto Ethiopia over 107 and 20 provinces, that in those days when the king Ahasuerus sat on the throne of his kingdom, which was in Shushan the palace, in the third year of his reign, he made a feast unto all his princes and his servants, the power of Persia and Media, the nobles and princes of the provinces, being before him. When he showed the riches of his glorious kingdom and the honor of his excellent majesty many days, even a hundred and four score days, that's six months. When these, when these days were expired, the king made a feast unto all the people that were present in Shushan the palace, both unto great and small, seven days in the court of the king's garden, uh, in the court of the garden of the king's palace where were white, green, and blue hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rings and pillars of marble. The beds were of gold and silver upon a pavement of red and blue and white and black and marble. So those beds are not beds like you would think of today. Actually, in that day and in that culture, they had almost like uh, little, little, uh, little beds, but almost how you'd see like a, a futon or something like that where there's just kind of one... I think a futon, one long deal where you'd sort of lay down and your feet would be up. And that is how they would eat. They would recline, kind of sitting up on one elbow with a pillow underneath, and they'd sit their food down and they'd eat like that. It's better for digestion, actually. Uh, that's why the Last Supper is this foolishness you see uh, drawn by men that don't know the God of the Bible or the Bible itself whatsoever. Give you a red-haired Jesus with white skin and blue eyes and long fingernails, even though the Bible describes him as a Jew with black eyes and black hair and not very good looking at all. Jesus was not attractive. He wasn't some male model. There was nothing about Jesus that the average person desired. And they show you him sitting at a table and, and all that kind of, that's a bunch of foolishness. See, they were laying down on, on beds and they were eating in a reclined state. A little bit of Bible will clear up all this religion garbage, religious garbage. We need the Bible. All right, so there's, there was beds there. And in verse 7, they gave them uh, drink and vessels of gold, the vessels being diverse one from another, and royal wine in abundance according to the state of the king. And the drinking was according to the law. None did compel. It was like the U.S. It's legal. For so the king had appointed to all the officers in his house that they should do no according to every man's pleasure. Also Vashti the queen made a feast for the women in the royal house which belonged to King Ahasuerus. On the seventh day when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, and Abagtha. Good night, ma'am. Zethar and Carcass, the seven chamberlains that served in the presence of Ahasuerus the king, to bring Vashti the queen before the king with the crown royal, to show the people and the princes her beauty, for she was fair to look on. But the queen, queen Vashti refused to come at the king's commandment by his chamberlains. Therefore was the king very wroth, and his anger burned in him. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then uh, we'll get into the message this morning. Father, I, I love you, and I thank you, Lord, for giving us a Bible. I'm glad, Father, I have something like a Bible to put my faith in. And Lord, I realize that a lot of men don't understand why we believe the Bible. Uh, they don't know the logic and the reason. They don't know the internal proofs in this book that it's obviously your word. Uh, they've never been taught it, God. They, they just don't know. I, I don't think everybody does it out of 
pure hatred of God, I think, Lord, there's been so much confusion over the years and so much baloney that's gone on in the name of God and the name of religion, so very, so very little preaching with the presence of God on it that people don't even get this book anymore. God, it's my heart's desire, but with the help of God, with the filling of your Holy Spirit, Father, it is my heart's desire to be able to expound these scriptures in such a way that brings light to the heart of the people listening to it. God, I want to be your vessel. I want to be your messenger in your message. I want to be your man this morning. So I pray that you get in this thing, Father, and that you do something that I can't do. I, I don't have time in these brief few minutes to give all the arguments as to why the Bible is something we ought to put our faith in and actually stand on for our eternal destination. But God, if you'll speak to hearts, if you'll deal with their minds, if you'll get a hold of them, Father, even if somebody's here that doesn't believe the Bible, if you'll deal with them, they'll know something was different. God, I pray for those that do believe the Bible, which the vast majority of us do, I pray you'd help us to see the depth and the length and the breadth and the height of this book and help our faith in your words to be strengthened. Help our faith in the unseen hand of God in our life to be strengthened. And may we leave here a little more dedicated to serving you, a little more serious about knowing your touch and your hand. And help us, God, to get something today that will help us throughout the affairs of this life. We ask in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, you can be seated. This morning I want to preach to you from this chapter on the subject of the unseen hand of God. The unseen hand of God. I think Esther is a really unique book. I'm actually very excited, like I said before, about preaching this because this is one of the most unique books in all of the Bible. One of the reasons it's one of the most unique books is the fact that the title of the book, the name of the book, is named after a woman. There's only two books in all the Bible named after a woman. One is the book of Ruth, which was a Gentile woman who married a Jewish man. And she becomes the great-grandmother of King David, the greatest king in all of Israel. Obviously, Ruth is a type of Christ in the church, a Jewish bride marrying a Gentile man. A, 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 a Gentile bride marrying a Jewish man. That's a type of Christ in the church. Esther's the other book in your Bible that is a type of the Israel, a Jewish woman, Marrying a Gentile king, it's Israel in her marriage to Almighty God. As you know from the Old Testament, Israel is the bride of God the Father. But in the New Testament, the church is the bride of God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. God the Father is divorced, by the way. The Old Testament prophets show us that. Nowadays, among these religious idiots that don't know what they're talking about, they act like if you're divorced somehow or another, you can't be a preacher, you can't be a deacon, you can't be a really good Christian, you've got this mark on you because you've been divorced. What that stuff is is Roman Catholic doctrine. That's not Bible doctrine. That stuff is religious garbage. That's not the hand of God. God Almighty Himself is divorced. He put away Israel because she was unfaithful to Him, which is one of the reasons Jesus Christ said in the New Testament, you have a right to divorce if if your spouse is unfaithful to you, you have a right to put them because they already married themselves to another. Jesus himself said, save for fornication. If you don't like it, take it up with him. He's God and you're not. Amen. So I'm going to preach what he says, whether the independent Baptists like it, the Catholics like it, you like it, or anybody else like it. As long as God likes it, we're going to preach the truth. And God himself is divorced. And what you have in this book is a picture, a type. Now, I've told you before, when it comes to types, you have to be very careful. 
Because no type runs 100%. You understand that? By the way, if you don't know, I'm not divorced. It's my first wife. It's my only wife. I'm going to die with her because if she leaves me, I'm going to go with her. You understand what I'm saying? That's how it is. Not making excuses for that stuff, but I hate that garbage. I think it's godless. It's not of God. I know too much about life and I've seen too many circumstances to beat people up with something that ain't in the Bible. Amen. Amen. All right, back on point. This is a type. You cannot take a type 100%. You don't base all of your doctrine on a type. What you do is you study the very clear passages of Scripture that nail out your doctrine and make it absolutely 100% clear. From those passages, you get your doctrine. Then once you have that doctrine established, you begin looking at the Bible and you watch the hand of God and that subtle moving, that, that behind-the-scenes work that Almighty God is doing, that sweet and that quiet voice that's, that's moving. And you can see the movement of God's hand throughout that book. And it's amazing how the types begin to back up the doctrine that's already been made clear. Does that make sense? Do not ever fall for somebody that tries to give you a doctrine built only on a type. Because you can take the Bible and make it say whatever you want it to say. You build it based on clear passages. Then the types back up what you already see. What's very clear is that God's divorced from Israel. He's put her away. He grafted the Gentile body in, right? What he's going to do? Once the Gentiles have finished doing, which we're getting very close to the end of, what Israel did in the Old Testament, walking away from God, rejecting the gospel, rejecting the word of God, not listening to the Lord, denying the obvious, denying their conscience, falling farther and farther into apostasy away from God. The Gentiles are in that process. What Romans tells us clearly is that when the Gentiles get to that point and God breaks her off, what's he doing? He's going back to the Jew and he's going to graft the Jew back in. But what the Lord's going to do is restore his divorced bride which is the best thing you can do is forgiveness and restitution if possible. God's going to do it. What Esther is a picture of is God bringing the, the, Gentile, the Jewish bride back because here you've got a Gentile king with a Gentile wife named Vashti and Vashti rebels against her head and so what happens is she gets put away like the Gentiles are going to be put away and a Jewish bride comes in by the name of Esther. Very interesting. Oh, and by the way, Esther comes in the chronology, nowhere near where it's placed. Let me explain what I just said in case you missed it. When you're reading through your Bible, you got Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, right? Esther comes after Nehemiah, right? In the layout of the canon of Scripture. Do you know in the Jewish Bible, before the King James Bible, that's not where Esther's placed. When it comes to the King James Bible, Esther is placed right after Nehemiah, right before the book of Job. What did I teach you when we went through Job? What is Job a picture of? Very clearly a picture of the Jew in the tribulation period. You know why God purposely put Esther before Job? To show you what he's doing in eschatology and what's going to happen in the end times and the work that God's going to do. But Esther actually falls back before Ezra chronologically, not before the book of Ezra, before the prophet, before the, the priest Ezra comes on the scene. The first seven chapters of the book of Ezra was Zerubbabel and Josiah, Joshua the high priest, right? And the first seven chapters of Ezra runs like that. And then Ezra comes on the scene some years later, halfway through the book of Ezra, although he wrote the whole book of Ezra, therefore it's named after Ezra. Did I lose you? Are you with me? Esther falls back there after Zerubbabel and Joshua the high priest come in, but before Ezra shows up. 
before Nehemiah. Ezra and Nehemiah show you what happened to the Jews that went back to the land post-exilic after they'd been taken off into Babylonian captivity and then Babylon gets defeated by Persia and then eventually Greece defeats Persia, right? So when, when they lay out that whole thing, what you see is you see these bunch of Jews being ordered by God to go back to the land to rebuild and reestablish the temple and the city Jerusalem, right? Esther's showing us what happened to the Jews that didn't obey but stayed in the land. They stayed in Babylon. She didn't go back. Mordecai didn't go back. A bunch of the Jews didn't go back. Ezra's a very unique book. Yes, Esther's a very unique book. But something's more unique about Esther even than that. Do you know that in the book of Esther, the name God never appears, and the word Lord never appears one time in the book of Esther? Isn't that amazing? You know, all these... I'm in the mood to preach a little bit. Is that all right? Okay, these idiotic morons that sit behind a desk and think they're smarter than God go to help God out. So they say, what we need to do is we need to put the name of God in the book of Esther because obviously this ain't right. Because the name of God and the name Lord has to appear in the Bible or it can't be a book. And so these idiots go in there thinking they're helping God out, thinking they're smarter than Almighty God. They're not smarter than God. They're fools. You understand what I'm saying? God has a message in the fact that His name didn't show up in the book anywhere and it's a message you and I need in the end times before the tribulation comes. It's something I need bad this morning. Because what Esther shows us is that even though God doesn't appear to be on the scene, even though God's name and the name Lord doesn't show up, even even though there's no miracles of the Red Sea parting, there's no manna from heaven, there's none of that stuff going on, there still is an unseen hand of God working behind the scenes in the affairs of men. Even though there's a king in a palace that's wicked and what's going on in the culture is a bunch of wicked things and, and even though there's, there's some other things happening we'll get to in just a minute, there's still an unseen hand of Almighty God that you and I need to understand, we need to grab a hold of. The context of this thing is Gentile nation, right? Well, in the times of the Gentiles, the times that you're living in, you're not getting miracles and signs and wonders and speaking in tongues and healings and all the rest of that garbage. That, that's not, that's not, that was a Jewish promise. God gave the Jews who required a sign a sign. God's not giving you a sign. But you know what God's doing? His hand is working in the affairs of men behind the scenes. I need to know that. You know why? Because I realize the one who's running the show ain't God. You know who the God of this world is right now? It's Satan. Your adversary. You realize he's your enemy, don't you? You realize there's principalities and powers, rulers of the darkness of this world. This world is being run by something and some things that are not God. You got to understand that you are living in enemy territory and it's not easy to live in enemy territory and it's hard in the day and age when you'd like to see some miracles from God. I mean, it'd be all right with me if God gave me a burning bush. I still try for it. You understand what I'm saying? I mean, between me and God, I'm not going charismatic on you. I'm not saying you should. This is not doctrine. I'm just saying I still try for it. I mean, I, I pray fleece prayers and all the rest. Why not? 
He is God. His hand's not shortened that it can't save. And I know that God can do whatever God wants to do. And I pray for it. But I understand doctrinally, I'm not in the day where He's promised that. But I do know His hand is active. And I want His hand in my life. I want to see it working. I want to see it working in my family. I want to see it working in my church. The unseen hand of God is something we need to realize. First of all, I want you to notice in the passage... Very important to grab a hold of this, that God moves in spite of the sinfulness of man. Look at the context, if you would. Go down with me to verse number 4. When he showed the riches of his glorious kingdom and the honor of his excellent majesty many days, even a hundred and fourscore days, that's six months. When the days were expired, the king made a feast unto all the people that were present in Shushan the palace, both on a great and small seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. What's going on here is you got a very arrogant man by the name of Ahasuerus. Uh, by the way, history calls him Xerxes. Ain't that interesting? You all know who Xerxes is. All of the scholars, the smart guys. And the only reason I'm telling you that is because Dr. Ruckman, a true scholar who has stayed a man of God, kept his feet in the dirt. Amen could beat you up for looking at him wrong. You understand what I'm saying? Not one of these little scholars sitting in an office never gets any dirt under his fingernails. Those are the kind of guys that are, well, this unfortunately could be rendered, and I think, well, you know, technically what this means in the originals, and you know, shut up. I live in a real world, and I want a real God. And I believe he's powerful enough to give me a perfect book. I don't have to go to you and trust your intellect to criticize what God did. God put this thing together on purpose to speak to my heart. Don't get in my way. What he said is, the scholars all agree it's probably true. <laughs> you can sense his acquiescing. You know what I mean? You understand what that is? That's an agreement through reluctance whenever they happen to get one right once in a blue moon. <laughs> and this is more than likely the Xerxes of history that you learned in college or in high school. And what he's doing is he's having a pride-filled show-off session for six months. You see, he's... In the third year of his reign, he's making a feast, and what he does is he brings in all the power of Persia and media. He brings in all his princes and all the, all the head over the different provinces, and what they would do in this day and time is they would have these big feasts, these huge parties of celebrations, but it was not a time where anybody brought the king gifts. You didn't bring the king gifts. Because you bringing the king a gift was insulting to the king. He was the high mucky muck. You understand what I'm saying? He was the Don. He was the boss. He was the big man. He was the God running the world. He was the Caesar. He was the Pharaoh. Ahasuerus is a title just like you would say Pharaoh or Caesar. So that's why they say this is Xerxes. But his title he's going by here is Ahasuerus. So he's the big man, and what he does is he blasts this huge party and funds the whole thing. It's super expensive. But he's showing the wealth and the power of his kingdom. He's showing everything that he's done. He's, he's kind of flexing his muscles. And what he would do at those feasts and those parties is they would award faithful servants. If there was any of his guys there that were good guys, he made sure that they got recognized, they got promoted, they got blessed, they got honored, they got riches, they got gifts, and really lay it on them thick, and then punish the unfaithful ones, thereby kind of like just solidifying solidifying his power, solidifying his leadership in an ungodly and manipulative way. There's nothing in this guy that you see in Jesus Christ. Do you understand what I mean? I mean, he's saying, hey, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, son of man hath not where to lay his head. He says, take up your cross and follow me. He's like, hey, I, I don't got it too good, but if you want to affiliate with me, then that's great, and I'll bless you for doing it, but come on, let's go suffer together. 
This guy's like, hey, if you're on my side, I'm going to make sure. You know, he's preaching the health and wellness gospel. That kind of stuff. If you serve God, your life's going to go great. Lying to him. You know, lying to him. You're going to sign up to serve an almighty, holy God in a sinful world that's run by the devil, and you're not going to be in a battle? Give me a break, man. So what he does is he has this big party, and he throws this thing. It's just a pride-filled show-off session. But the hand of God is moving. See, it's, it's, it's a pretty bad spot. I, I mean, nothing about this looks good. It's like, you know, the White House. You know, drain the swamp. You know, all those crooked liberals, those crooked Democrats, all those crooked uh, Republicans. Oh, I mean, what are we going to do in the day? The laws they're passing and the way they're acting and the partying and the, and the wicked living at the highest levels. We're just doomed. Hey, the hand of God is not shortened just because you're in a day and age where there's a lot of stuff going on that shouldn't be going on at the highest levels. I still serve a holy God and I still believe that God's hand moves in the spite of sinful men. So I need the message. I'm glad he never puts his name in there and he goes, I'm going to show you a behind-the-scenes view and I'm just going to give you a picture of what's going on in the world. And if you're smart enough and if you're praying enough and if you're seeking me enough, I'm going to show you some stuff in this book of Esther that will apply to your life that you'd have never noticed if you didn't believe me that I know I left my name out on purpose. Not only that, but you got Esther there and you got Mordecai there and you got all these Jews there. Hey, you know what they're a type of? They're a type of the Christians like you and me who are failing God. Because God had told them to go back to the land, right? You ever feel like you fall short? Come on, let's get real. I mean, just be real with me. Do you ever feel like you fall short? (laughs) You, You ever feel, you know, I should pray more. I'm trying, I fail. I should read more. I should witness more. I shouldn't be struggling with the same things I've been struggling with. You ever feel that way? Yes. Yeah, so do I. You know what I'm thankful for? I'm thankful for a God, for a God who has a powerful hand that can move in spite of the sinfulness of men. Look, I'll show you something. Let me, let, go back to the book of uh, Haggai, if you would. Forward to the book of Haggai. So if you don't know where that one is, let me help you. Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. That's the end of the Old Testament. So if you find Malachi, the end of the Old Testament... Just go a couple books back and find the book of Haggai. Haggai is prophesying somewhere near the time frame of Esther. So what, it, what we're doing is we're giving you a view of what has been going on with God's people at this time. Look at uh, Haggai verse number 1. The second year of Darius the king in the sixth month in the first day of the month. So we're back over there at the beginning of the book of Ezra somewhere. Came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet unto Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel. That's before Ezra shows up. Governor of Judah. And to Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest. You remember I explained to you the process, all right? Just a little bit ago at the beginning of Ezra. Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, This people say, The time is not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. This is one of the passages the Lord's been speaking to me about, about our building progress project. Just one. So the people are saying it's not time. The time's off. It's not going to work. It's not right timing. Costs are up. Look at verse 3. Then came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet saying, Is it time for you, O ye, to dwell in your sealed houses and this house lie waste? Now therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. He said, let's stop and talk about something. Let's stop and think about something. I want you to consider something. 
You people stayed in the land when I told you to go back and rebuild. Just to make it quicker for you, we'll look at it in a second, but so you understand before we get there, they went back to rebuild. They began, they built the altar. They got going on building the temple. They built the altar at the beginning of Ezra. They began worshiping God. They were doing the right things. God was in it. The hand of God was in it. They begin building the wall, and then opposition came, and they stopped the work. And what happened is Haggai and Zechariah show up, and they start preaching to them. So when you read these, read these minor prophets, like, oh, this doesn't make any sense. It makes a lot of sense once you understand what's going on in Israel at the time, once you get the picture from history, once you understand the process and how God's moving. These guys showed up and started preaching. I'm saying, listen to me. You people, you're building your own houses. Likely Esther and Mordecai and the rest of Israel that stayed back, that didn't go back to the land to build the temple like they were told, stayed there because, man, we got it good. I mean, we got a great economy. We live in the United States of America. Why would we pack up and go to a mission field? Why would we sell out for Jesus Christ? Why would we pour our time and effort and energy into church on Sunday? I mean, good night, man. Our kid's the star of the soccer team. That's so important. Notice my sarcasm, please. God, yeah, whatever. But sports. But money. But career. But just sitting around the house and putting my feet up because I don't feel good and it's my one day off. It's my family day. What happened to the rest of your stinking week? I'm preaching now. I'm not apologizing for it either. I've been real nice lately, and I just I can only be nice for so long, all right? I gotta be me again. When I'm nice, I mean it, I promise. I'm just kidding. He's saying, What are you people doing? You don't care about the house of God anymore, but you sure love your own prosperity. You sure love your own houses. You're building your own life. You're not worried about the work of God. It's not time. Thus saith the Lord, verse 5, consider your ways, right? Look at verse 6. Ye have sown much and bring in little. Ye eat, but ye have not enough. Ye drink, but ye are not filled with drink. Ye clothe you, but there is none warm. And he that earneth wages, earneth wages to put it into a bag with holes. Thus saith the Lord, consider your ways. Ain't it fast? How, ain't it crazy how fast the money goes? It's wild, ain't it? I mean, you're going to break your neck to make the money. And, you, you know, don't give me this. If I made the money they make, don't give me that stuff. You, you know how they get taxed? It's easier for rich people to give. You're wrong. It's harder. I know that ticks some people off. Yes, like it just really got like tight in the room when I said that. I'll say it again since you didn't like it. It's the truth. It's harder. It'd be harder for you. Look at this paycheck. And then you're like, the government just literally stuck a gun in my face and took like 30%. Well, if I had that kind of, if you had that kind of money, you'd have the bills too. Don't give me that garbage. Don't, Don't look at me that way. It's, like, it's amazing. It doesn't matter how much money you make. It has a place. It just goes somewhere. Do you understand what I mean? Living for money is not going to get you anywhere in this life. Living for Jesus Christ will get you somewhere. And some of you need to get a new attitude about money. You need to understand it ain't about the money. It's about God that can provide your needs. It's a God that can stretch your dollar to make your bills make it. It ain't about your spending power or buying power or earning power. It is about the God that can stretch that money for you and the God God that can take it away from you. And if you got money, it's God that gave you the strength to get it. I'm not impressed. Amen. And neither is God. Amen. 
He says, consider your ways. I don't mind you having money. I hope you all do. I pray you get, yeah, you want to know how stupid I am? I pray you all get raises. I would pray that I win the lottery, but I don't play it. You know what I'm saying? So I don't know. I'm hoping somebody drops one in the parking lot and I get it. You know what I mean? How do you tell everybody I got rich by paying the lot, playing the lottery and I'm your preacher? See what I mean? I found a lottery ticket and the Lord said, pick that up. I heard an audible voice from heaven. So, you know, God, you give me a million and I'll give uh, half back. <laughs> the negotiations do start. You know what I mean? It ain't about money. Consider your ways. I hope you have money. You know, there's nothing in the Bible about God not loving you because you have money. He says, charge them that are rich in this world. And he didn't mean, you know, charge them. He said, tell them. Don't be high-minded or trust in this stupid money. But trust in God. He didn't say nothing about making sure they give it all away to everybody else. He did say, remember the poor. You understand what I'm saying? Consider your ways. He says in verse 8, go up to the mountain and bring wood and build the house and I'll take pleasure in it. And I'll be glorified, saith the Lord. You know what he's saying? You guys got a whole lot going on for you? Why don't you stop being so selfish and do a little something for God with your life? Put your effort into the work of God. That was the state of Israel. More than likely the state of Esther and Mordecai. And you know them as heroes. But if you slow down and study your Bible, you recognize them as people that weren't doing that great, that weren't that sold out originally. But the hand of God began moving in circumstances and the pressure began to build up and God began setting the stage and manipulating some things and allowing some things. See, it's the providence of God. We're not Calvinists here. We don't believe God does it all. We actually believe you have free will to do what you want. You have the power to reject the Son of God who's calling to you saying, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. It is the will of Almighty God. It is His desire. It's His strong will to save your soul from a devil's hell for you to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, His only begotten Son, who took your sins on the cross of Calvary, descended to put your sins in hell, ascended the third day, and ever lives to make intercession for you. It is God's will for you to trust His Son as your Savior so you can go to heaven when you die. And He'll work on you about that. But he'll never override your free will. Amen. He'll allow the circumstances of your life to lead you and direct you. So, you understand what I'm talking about? The unseen hand of God yes, sir. working in this passage. Working through a wicked king. Working through what very realistically could be backslidden Jews. Esther and Mordecai. To set things up to bring them to a place where the hand of God can be seen in a miraculous way. To do amazing things in that nation. It's wild. But this is the state. Go back to the book of Ezra please. Look at Ezra chapter number 5. Actually the end of Ezra chapter number 4. Ezra and Nehemiah then Esther. The end of Ezra chapter 4 and verse 23 it says, Now when the copy of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before Rehum and Shimshai the scribe and their companions... They went up in haste to Jerusalem under the Jews and made them cease, made them to cease by force and power. Verse 24, then ceased the work of the house of God which is at Jerusalem. So it ceased under the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. 
Well, what that happened is they began building the house like they were told to. And what happens when you start trying to do a work for God, head in the direction of God, the, the sinfulness of man and the sinfulness of the world and the pressure and resistance from the devil and the attacks from the principalities and powers and the attacks from the brethren and the politics and all the rest of those things and family, all the rest that comes in, trying to struggle and snuff out and choke out the seed of the word of God, the work that God's wanting to do in your life, you're going to find resistance to it. You're going to have all kinds of reasons and excuses why you can't keep coming to church. I'm telling you, they're going to come. The devil will fill your head with fear before you leave the house. He'll attack you before you get up in the morning. He'll tell you Saturday night why you can't be here. He's always going to try to snuff out the work that God wants to do in your life. What happens in chapter 5, verse 1? Then the prophets, Haggai the prophet, and Zechariah the prophet, the son of Idol, prophesied unto the Jews that were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel, even unto them. Then rose up Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Jozadak, and began to build the house of the God which is at Jerusalem, and with them were the prophets of God helping them. You know what happened? Pressure came and they stopped the work. And then God said, I know how to get that work going. Come here, boy. Haggai. You know what it says in, in Haggai? It calls on the Lord's messenger in the Lord's message. He wasn't the man of God. Never forget years ago, I was at a meeting and one preacher introduced me to another preacher and he was the main speaker of the, of the meeting. And he says, I want you to meet, you know, Pastor Reagan. And he's like, man of God! I'm, I'm shaking his hand. He's man of God me. And I said, my name's Mike. Because I, I can't stand that. Man, I'm the man of God. I'd heard the same guy preach that night how he had never poured a cup of coffee or made a pot of coffee because that's a woman's job. You're a tough guy, aren't you? Really impressed. Man of God! My name's Mike. You know what Haggai was? He wasn't the man of God. He was the Lord's messenger in the Lord's message. That preaching was not what he did. It was his life. The messages that were coming out of Haggai's mouth were not book learning. It wasn't him helping God out because the name God and the name Lord doesn't appear in the book. The messages coming out of Haggai's life was the working of Almighty God in Haggai's heart and the circumstances of Haggai's life. And so he was delivering the messages in the Lord's message, because he was the Lord's messenger. And he told the people, listen, Zerubbabel, Joshua, it's time to get building again. What are you doing? Well, they're coming after us. Well, did God send you here to build a work? Well, they're stopping us. You don't understand the stoppers. You don't understand how dangerous it is. Hey, did God send you here to build a work? Why is the house laying ruins? Your yard looks great. Your flowers look great. Your house has been remodeled. Everything's looking good. Your addition is wonderful. I'm all for your swimming pool. God bless you, you got a hot tub. I mean, it all's wonderful in your life, but the house of God's laying in ruins. It's time to get going again on the work God called you to do. Let's get this thing on. It's time to build. And the hand of God is working in spite of the fact that even the priest, even the leaders... 
had kind of been lulled to sleep by the resistance, had kind of been intimidated, had kind of been pressured, had kind of stopped moving forward for God. And God's hand's moving, and you know how he moves? The same way he's still moving today. He moves through the preaching of the word of God. God manifests his word through preaching. Amen. That's why I'm praying as we go through the book of Esther that you see things and understand things about the Bible you've never seen before. That the picture starts coming together and you go, man, I've read the book of Esther before, but I never saw that. Wow, that makes so much more sense. You know why? That's God's hand. That's God's work manifesting that word. And you can take something four or five hundred years before the end of the Old Testament and apply it in your life now. God's hand's moving in spite of the sinfulness. You know what I find super cool? That Xerxes, the one that you're reading. Now, this is a grain of salt, okay? A lot of smart guys say between chapter 1 and chapter 2, there was a whole bunch of battles that went on between Persia and Greece. And that, that anger in chapter 2, verse 1, that we'll see next week, clearly in context, he is angry at Vashti. But he had all these guys together for this big celebration, this big party, all the lords, all the power of Media and Persia, getting them frothed up for the battles he was fixing to go face because he's trying to take Greece. You know, God never stops one time to mention the Battle of Thermopylae. God never stops one time in the book of Esther to say boo about the Spartans. God never even stops one time to inspire Hollywood to make one movie about any of that foolishness. And yet Hollywood, all they care about is latching on to the debauchery. All they care about is trying to show you how wicked those guys were and how powerful they were in the flesh and talk about that stuff and build that stuff up. But they never spend any time in your college classes or your high school classes to tell you, hey, listen, there's some amazing things happening here and God's yawning on his throne in heaven, yawning on his throne in heaven while the battles are going on, the battle of Thermopylae and the Spartans. God's like, What God did care about is a little girl by the name of Esther, a little maiden in Israel whose name was Esther who wasn't yet the girl he was going to make her but something down deep inside of her he saw something there he said, I think I can use that girl to make a massive difference in years to come. She's important to me. I'm going to name a book of the Bible after her. We're so infatuated with wars and the Spartans and they starved the young men and sent them out and they had to survive by stealing to eat and if they got caught they were beaten and how they made them these fierce warriors and this is so great, this is so wonderful and God's like, grow up. Really? Look at her. Look at that young lady. Look at the character in that girl. Look at the strength in that girl. I can trust her with the pressure cooker I can't trust anybody else with because I know she's going to make the right decisions. That girl's got the character. Talking about the moving of the hand of God in spite of the sinfulness in the nation and in spite of the fact that the rest of us would look at Esther at this point in chapter 1 and go, she ain't where she should be. God saw something else. 
the moving of God's hand in spite of the sinfulness in the world, in spite of the backslidden state of God's people. Number two, and I'll be quick, I want you to notice that God, back in Esther chapter 1, please, God's the master of the universe. Look at verse 5, and here's the type. When the days were expired, the king made a feast unto all the people that were present in Shushan the palace. You know what God's going to do when the days are expired? He's going to pull us out of here, and we're going to have a feast. And I'm looking forward to that day. In the court of the garden of the king's palace. You know where we're going? <laughs> we're going to the garden of the king's palace. See, this is, this is just a human king. This is the world superpower. This is the number one guy on the planet at this point. But guess what? He's going to go down because Rome is coming. We serve a God that ain't going down. Lucifer's going to try to come and get burned up in the end with fire falling down out of heaven. He's going to come with his host to the Battle of Armageddon, and we'll see it on Wednesday night. We'll wash our feet in their blood. Sword's going to come out of God. See, that's the God of the Bible that people don't like. They like little Jesus in a manger, but they don't like the Jesus on a white stallion with the sword coming out of his mouth, lobbing off heads until the blood flows up to the horse's bridle in the valley of Armageddon. What kind of God would? A God that judges sinfulness. Ain't it wild to you that he keeps his mouth shut about all going on in Sparta? I, really, I used to adore the Spartans, man. I, I, there's a, somebody got me a sweatshirt I loved with the Spartan emblem on it. Then I found out that most of them guys were sodomites. I can't wear the thing anymore. I got it put away, and I appreciate the gift and all that stuff, and I'm like, eh. <laughs> you know, ain't it funny that God had so much long-suffering and mercy on him? Doesn't mean he's not going to judge. Do you understand me? The scholars all read into this text that Ahasuerus wanted Vashti to come dance inappropriately in front of him. They're reading into it. Because they've watched too many movies. The text never says that. All God told you is he wanted them to see her beauty. And she refused to do what she was told. That's all you know. So if I'm going to go and say, oh, he was this and he was that. Now history will tell you a lot of things about Xerxes. But God didn't care to mention it. So I'm not going to preach it. Because God's trying to show you a type. And if God mentioned all that stuff, you'd miss the type. You'd miss the hand of God in laying out the orders of the books in your King James Bible. And you wouldn't be able to believe your King James Bible like you do if God didn't mention that stuff on purpose. Man's sinful mind loves to go there. But God's trying to lay out a type for us that we can't miss. You can't overlook the type. There's a garden here of the king's palace. Do you know the word mammon? Is money, but it's a Persian word. Did you know the tree of life is a Persian term? The scholars all like to go on about Greek and Hebrew, Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic. And there's more to the Bible than just that. Did you know the word paradise is a Persian word? That word actually means a garden or an estate that's well-gardened, well-manicured, and there'd be wildlife there, and you could go out hunting on that property, hence the Indians get the happy hunting grounds. That's the word paradise. Interesting, huh? Amazing how God's woven this book together. You can't, I've read my Bible. I don't believe the Bible, I read it. Okay, turn to Haggai. 
Go to Zephaniah. Right now, show me Zephaniah. Where's Amos? Smart Alec. You know the Bible, don't you, huh? God Almighty wrote it, and you know, well, it was written by men. How many different men on how many different continents? Over what period of time? Smart Alec. You're going to judge a book like that that's changed the world and convicts your heart. It can tick you off so bad, make you so stinking mad. Listen, I could go sit in Muslim, Muslim mosque and listen and preach, and it doesn't make me mad. There's no conviction. I'm like, that ain't right. That ain't right. That ain't right. That doesn't make any sense. How, how unfair is that? She can't even look at a man, but you can have all the wives you want, you stinking perv. That ain't right. But boy, the Bible will tick them off so bad. You know, just, it's got power. Preaching will make them so mad. I appreciate all the compliments I've gotten over the year and, uh, years, and I, and I think you do it with the right spirit, and it helps me. But some of the ones that stick out the most in my mind is when they leave and say, I had the worst church experience of my life today. Well, I know I'm preaching. Because if people don't get ticked off every once in a while, you must not be preaching to sinful people the holy books, holy words of God. I'm telling you, that book ticks me off. I'm with you. You made me mad today. Yeah, I know. It made me mad too. You think I preach messages that don't first get at me? It's about him. It's not about me and it's not about, it's about him. I need help from him. And when the book cuts me, hey, listen, get it out, God. It must have cut because there's something in there you got to clean out. I want cleaned out. I want God. I want that hand moving in my life. And I need it. And I'm thankful it moves in spite of me. Because the master of the universe is the one sitting in the background. You see, you got a man running the world. Ahasuerus. Thinking he knows what he's doing. The most powerful, most intelligent, likely. Man, most, for sure the most influential man on the planet at the time. And what does that mean to God? God's fixing to work in the background, moving his hand around and taking care of things and setting things up that's going to blow this man's mind. This man's inner circle is going to start coming apart. This man's going to box himself into a corner that only he really, with the help of God, can get himself out of. He's going to be forced to correct himself in order to stop the damage that he makes by just stumbling through his life being the most powerful man in the world and wrecking everything and everybody around him that he's responsible for leading. He's going to learn some things about the hand of God. God's hand begins to move because God's the master of the universe. Notice the king's feast in verse 6. In the court of his garden, in verse 5, in verse 6, again, continuing to show you the beauty of how he has things set up. In verse number 7, it says, there's royal wine in abundance, like at the marriage supper of the Lamb. The wine you're going to get there is freshly pressed. It's not fermented wine. Verse number 8, the drinking was according to the law, none did compel. Do you know when you get to heaven, you're going to get to do whatever you want? Ain't that going to be awesome? Do you know now if you do whatever you want, you're going to get in trouble? You know, I'm thankful for laws. Because there are some things I would have done over the years. They put a man in jail. You understand what I'm saying? I mean, there's just been some people, you know what I mean? There's just been some times, some moments. You know what I'm trying to say without saying it? You know, like, <laughs> you think that's funny? I don't think it's funny. I'm going to show you how not funny I think that, right? You know what I mean? Laws are what we need. Blockers, things to control us. You know, the day is coming when you're not going to have to worry about it at all. 
any thought that comes through your head, you can let go. Anything you want to do, at any moment you want to do it, anything you want to eat, anything you want to drink, anything you want to do, anywhere you want to go, you're not going to have to worry about it at all when you're in the king's palace. Because you're going to have the mind of Christ and a glorified body. There won't be any sin tempting you. There won't be an ability to sin. You won't be able to displease your father. You will be so in tune with him and so walking with him and so interwoven to him that it will be nothing but joy and pleasures evermore. No sin. No, oh good Lord, what did I just do? No man, I hope I don't get caught. None. Because the master of the universe is in control. Yeah, I know he, he, he's, he's not running every little detail right now. The God of this world is. But if he's your God, he's still in control. My last point. He makes his authority of his word. Look down, if you would, please. And just for the sake of time, he gets together after Vashti makes this move. He gets together with all his leaders and his counselors and the different heads of the departments and says, what are we going to do? And they said this, they said, because of what Vashti's done, if we don't make her a public example, all the women in the kingdom are going to do what she did and disrespect their husbands and all the authority is going to come apart and the whole thing is going to come unglued and everything's going to melt down. Like America. Because there's no authority anywhere but you. You understand that, man? People got such an authority problem nowadays. It's going to get worse. Notice in verse number 19, they come to a verbal agreement. It says in verse number 19, If it please the king, let there go a royal commandment from him. First, it's a verbal commandment. Now watch this. And let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes that it be not altered. You know what happened with the king's authority? When he put it down in writing, he couldn't go back on it. No matter what. Once he wrote it, it was done. You get it yet? (laughs) Talking about the unseen hand of God. You know why you live in a day and age where God doesn't have to do a bunch of miracles for you? Because he completed one. You find me another book on the planet written by over 40 authors on multiple continents over hundreds and thousands of years where they can actually prophesy of things they couldn't even see yet. Scientifically, that we've just now begun to prove some of them, where foolish idiots with super high IQs made fun of the book because everybody knows that that's not... And nowadays they're finding out, the more they study science, the more they're finding out the book in your hand is perfect. It had to be God. It's a miracle. Because he wrote it down, and when he writes it down, you got nothing better to put your life, base your soul and your life on than this book right here. Nothing better in the universe. Because he wrote it down. And when he writes it down, he ain't altering it. He ain't updating it and revising it. He's got it finished. This is the book until the rapture. You understand that? That's the third time God gave it. He gave it in the Hebrew Masoretic. He gave it in the Greek New Testament. And he gave it in the English because it's the world's language now. The world's superpower England transferred to the U.S. By the time this is up, God's done. You're not looking for another book. And you're not looking for somebody to come along and help you by inserting words in it in the book of Esther. Study the one you got. You'll spend your life trying to figure it out. And the more you study it, the more amazing it gets. 
It's the hand of God. You want the hand of God in a day and age when you're not getting miracles? I do. Stay in the book. Stay under the sound of Bible preaching like you are this morning. And watch God's hand work in the circumstances of your life. Here's my conclusion. Turn to Esther chapter 4. Let me show you something. Esther chapter 4. And look with me, if you would, please, at verse number 13. Now, I'm not going to preach this because we'll be preaching it in a couple weeks, but just look at the thought. Then Mordecai commanded to Esther, Think not with thyself that thou shalt escape in the king's house more than all the Jews. Showing you that there was obviously a growth process for her. They'd obviously been staying in the wrong place and not going back out of safety and security and See what I'm saying, how I said that earlier? He says, don't think just because you're in there that you're going to escape. For if thou altogether holdest thy peace at this time, then shall their enlargement and deliverance arise to the Jews from another place. You know why? Because the hand of God's not shortened that it can't save in spite of the circumstances. God's going to get something done, even if Esther chooses not to be the one God uses. That's her prerogative. God's like, you've got a free will, fine. I can find somebody else. That's how his hand works. But thou and thy father's house shall be destroyed, and who knoweth whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this. You know what she had to do? She had to recognize the hand of God on the situation and say, you know what, Lord? If I perish, that's what she says, I perish. But your hand is on this. And since your hand is on this, I'm submitting to your hand. I'm looking for your hand. I'm going with your hand. Looking back, I can see you set this whole thing up. Even though I never saw a miracle, I never heard a voice, I didn't even see the name of God. But right now I see the hand of God. And I know you're here. And yes, I'll step up to be the one to allow the hand of God to use me in this place at this time under these circumstances. So deliverance can come to somebody else. And God can be glorified. And now you know her name. All because of the hand of God. You better be careful about the hand of God. Because it'll come, and when it comes, you might not like it, and it's not going to be what you think it is. Because God knows how to test you and purify you and work on your motives and get your mind right, get you humble, get you down low, beat you up a little bit to rebuild you. You've got to desire His hand. And when it comes, you've got to submit to it. And then only God can do great things that God does. You can't even do it. You can't accomplish it. You can't imagine it. You don't even know what it is. You can never figure it out. Only God can do it. Amen. Let's stand to our feet this morning.